Okay, so we are reading that chapter in Leviticus, and you know the Jewish uh, and the Christian translations have different verse numbers, and we're all sitting there like trying to figure out where we are and what's going on. And I don't know if you're that probably felt really discombobulated. I think that would be the technical term for that feeling. Hey, but you know what? That's the way a lot of people feel when they try and read through Leviticus. Hey, like really, it's like. That specific chapter wasn't really addressed to you. It was addressed to priestly families. So, you know, that's the stuff that little boys in a priestly family would grow up on. Like, all right, son. So the, the liver, you take the lobe of the liver off, but not the whole liver, son. And it's the fat on the kidneys that goes here. And then the blood from this offering gets dashed here. Like, can you imagine being a little boy? You're just growing up with that stuff. You know, by the time you're a teen, it's probably second nature. But um, for most of us, we didn't grow up with our dads giving us a lot of practical instruction on, on matters like that. So um, I, I, I've been having a really enjoyable time already going through Leviticus, um, deriving some practical instructions from it, trying to feel what is the Father's heartbeat in this book? How does it point to Yeshua? So let's continue on that quest today. How would that sound? Yeah, let's see what we can get out of this stuff. Um, there... In, um, and I, and you'll be, you're, you're going to love me for this. I'm going to use the Christian um, verse, verse numberings, so you won't have to try and mentally calibrate seven verse, verses farther for every reference I give. So um, let's look at uh, Leviticus chapter 6, verse 9 together. Leviticus 6, 9. Is this thing too loud? Is it okay? Yeah, yeah, good. Okay, good. Ah, there we are. Okay, Leviticus 6, 9. Set. Hmm? This part is called Sav, which means command, because it says, uh, command Aaron and his son, saying, and then it says, this is the law for the burnt offering. What's the Hebrew word there for law? Can you guess? It's the Torah, that's correct. What does Torah actually mean? Is it like a law, like legislation, like this is the... Yeah, loving instruction. Teaching, that's right. So it's more than just a physical law. The idea there is there's a teaching behind this thing. Right? It's not just the letter of the law. What's the spirit of the law here? And, and that's our intent as we look through this. Uh, burnt offering. Can anyone remember the Hebrew word for burnt offering that we learned last week? Ola, that's correct. Is that, is that Hebrew or Spanish? Ola in this case is Hebrew. And what does it mean? It means to go up, to make aliyah. Actually, I brought my toy helicopter here today. I have one of those cool remote control helicopters. I got it from Bianca Moore's in Saskatoon. And it's tiny, but like you can make it go up and in every direction. And I thought, I'm going to bring it to congregation today. I was hoping I'd have some spare time before our service started, because like, this is a big room, eh? I just thought it would be really fun to fight around. I didn't have any time to do that, but that would be an example of something going up, of making aliyah. So maybe I'll, get, I'll crack out my toy helicopter after, and uh, we'll, we'll see something go up, okay? We'll, we'll see something... It'll be like an Ola, you know, making Aliyah, that idea. Okay, so that's that one. I'm, let's just um, take a second to do a brief overview of the different sections in this portion. It has all of these, it begins by saying, this is the law of this, and then this is the law of that. So let's have a look at that. In uh, 625, it says, this is the, uh, the law of the sin offering. So this is the Torah of the chatat. Chatat is sin. Everybody say chatat. Man. Yeah. You guys probably feel like you're back in Hebrew class with me. Hey, like at your house. It's like, 
Everybody say this scary sounding word, chatat. <laughs> yeah, okay, so that's chatat. Then in Leviticus 7.1, it says this is the law of the guilt offering. This is the Torah ha-asham. Everybody say asham. That's a guilt offering. Kind of sounds like shame, you know, asham, guilt offering. Um, then in 7.12, it says this is the Torah of the zevach hashlamim. Remember that one? Zevach. It's a sinister sounding word. What does it mean? Zevach is like an offering. It's something that's slaughtered. Yeah, that's right. The peace offering or the fellowship offering. Then in 7.12, I like this. It says, um, if he offers it by way of thanksgiving, in the Hebrew it says, al todah, literally on thank you. Everyone, yeah, al todah. If he offers it like uh, on, on, a thanks, on thanksgiving. And um, then it goes on to say, then along with the sacrifice of thanksgiving, and the word there is uh, zevach todah. So it's a, it's a thank you offering. Yeah. Then in 7.14, it says, um, talks about the, uh, yeah, the peace offering. Then there's another one, and I got the verse numbers around there. It's classic. I read this thing in Hebrew, eh? And then I have to go back and I have to try and get all the right English verses. But anyway, what, what does it talk about the, uh, like the grain offering? Let's all, let's all like scour the passage and find it together. 714? 614, there we go. Thank you. 614, it says this is the law of the grain offering. The Hebrew word for grain offering is mincha. Everybody say mincha. M-I-N-C-H-A-H Mincha And uh, grain offering is actually It's a pretty uh, That's a pretty uh, They're stretching it a bit with that one uh, The root word of uh, Mincha Is the same as the Noah's name Noah Why did they call him Noah? He said this one will give us rest This one will give us comfort From the works of our hands That's the idea there um, In the temple service there was the morning offering, and that was called the shacharit offering. Shacharit is morning, right? And then the afternoon offering was the mincha offering. So in the Jewish world today, uh, you have a couple daily appointments with the Holy One. You know, you pray in the morning and you connect with Him, and that's shacharit. Those are the shacharit prayers. And then you also pray in the afternoon and you connect with Him. And those are the mincha prayers. So in the Jewish world, praying in the afternoon or before supper is called praying mincha. Right, it's a very common word, and uh, it's the word here translated as grain offering. Can you think of any examples where a dude was praying in the afternoon in the book of Acts, say, and something happened? Um, Peter, excellent, yeah, and also Cornelius. Wow, there are two. I, I didn't think of I didn't think of Peter. I only had Cornelius in my notes. Thank you. So th- th- these are these are um, these are two guys who were praying at the dr- traditional time of prayer. They were praying mincha, and what happened? They had like an angelic visitation. They had an encounter with the supernatural. So could it be that, you know, the traditional Jewish times of prayer aren't just some silly thing that some guy made up? This is very biblical. So, you know, if you want to be like tracking with the Holy One and really staying in touch with, the, with, with, with what He has for you, take some time in the afternoon or before supper to just touch base with Him and pray for a minute. Yeah, that would be the idea. I get really hungry right around 4 o'clock and I have to go get a snack. So I could really relate to Simon Peter on that one. Yeah. 
Well, here, here's the fun thing. Like, you know, with my watch, it says 6 o'clock in the morning, whether the sun's been up for two hours in summer or whether the sun's not going to be up for another three hours in the winter, right? But in the, uh, in the Hebrew world, you just have 12 hours from sunrise till sundown. So you call them variable hours is the technical term. So, um, you know, the third hour of the day is around nine, like 9 o'clock in the morning our time. And then the... Then the ninth hour, for instance, it says Simon, Peter, and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour to pray. That would be like around three or four o'clock, something like that. So it's a little tricky, you know. So we would say, well, right on nine o'clock sharp, but it's a little different with that. I'll repeat that because our live streaming guests have been asking me to repeat stuff. So like, yeah, you're right. Just like there are geographic portals like Jerusalem. What did Jacob say? It's a gate of heaven. Um, there are, there are portals in time also, the Moedim, the appointed times. That's right. Actually, there was a speaker in Saskatoon from Sunday to Tuesday, and he did a seminar. He was from the International House of Prayer with Mike Bickle, and he was talking about this. He was talking about how, like, the Creator has a clock, and he has a schedule, and he has times when he's inviting us to meet with him. I just think that's very cool. That's something that the broader body Messiah is really tapping into. And if you're connecting with the Hebrew roots of your faith, if you're exploring the Jewish tradition of prayer, you, you kind of take it for granted. So it's, it's a really, that's very cool. Um, also in the last one, the last offering that's listed here is in 620. And it says, this is the offering which Aaron and his sons are to present to Yahweh. Uh, and the word there for offering, can anyone guess? Korban. Did you say, is that what you said? Oh, yeah, it's Korban. Wait. Can anyone tell me what korban means based on our discussion last week? What's that? To draw near, that's right. It's something, it's a gift that's given that in the process of giving it, you come close to another person. Yeah, so that's, that's korban. So those are, the, those are just the basic categories in this parasha. Um, you'll notice that it says this is the teaching of for each one of those. Um, we'll look at the teaching that's connected with one of these. Just one of them. And we'll see how deep it is and how relevant it is to our lives. It sums up these different categories in chapter 7, verse 37. It says, this is the Torah, the teaching of the burnt offering, the Olah, the grain offering, which is... I'll let you shout the Hebrew back to me. Okay, I'm going to give you each one of these and you shout the Hebrew back to me. Um, the burnt offering. Olah. The grain offering. Mincha. And the sin offering. The chatat and the guilt offering, the asham, that's right, and the ordination offering. We didn't cover that one. It, it's the Hebrew word to fill, and it's miluim. It's like to, to be filled. When you're filled, you're ordained. And the sacrifice of peace offerings, which is? Yeah, zevach shlamim, that's right. So, remember last week we talked about how often we have a very small-minded view of the whole sacrificial system. If we, you know, we, we think it's all about sin. Everyone is sin, 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 right? How many of those are actually about sin? And how many of those are just about fellowship with the Creator? The guilt offering and the sin offering, those two are about sin. But that's only two out of six. So the other ones are just for people who want to relate to Him, who want to come to the temple and be close to God, eh? So that kind of helps us to understand the heart of the sacrificial system. Yeah. And you know what? That's very true for us too. When we bring like an offering of worship to Him, when praise is a sacrifice and we still bring that and it costs us something, when we don't feel like it, that's, 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 that's how it works out in our lives too. That's what we did this morning. Yeah. 
So here's, here's um, let's, let's look at the Torah, the teaching behind one of these offerings. In a 6 verse 9 and 6 verse 12, it talks about the olah, the burnt offering, and it talks about the fire on the altar. And I, I want to look at that concept of the fire on the altar. What, what, is that, what does that symbolize? Because it says there's an altar in heaven, and there's fire on that altar also. So I have a couple of verses about the fire, like the Esh Elohim, the fire of God throughout Scripture. And let's, let's try and dig into this one. In uh, Shir Hashirim, Song of Songs, chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, we read this. And I, we, we sang that last song that we sang about you won't relent because, uh, because it's, it's, it's based on these verses. It says, Put me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death, where there's like fierce as death. Jealousy is as severe as Sheol. Its flames are flashes of fire the very flame of Yahweh. So did you catch that? Many waters can't quench love, nor will rivers overflow it. If a man were to give all the riches of his house for love, it would be utterly despised. So the first thing we can see is the fire on the altar is a picture of the love of Yahweh. Like a, a fierce love, an unquenchable love, a love that's stronger than death. And think about this for a second. There was a man who shed his blood so that we could be free and so that we could be his. And he actually died. And he had a love for us that was stronger than death. He came back for us. Like, if that, if that wouldn't be, like, the best romance ever, I don't know what would be. Like, a man who loved his beloved so much that he came back from the dead for her. Like, even death couldn't hold him down, eh? So that's the first picture that we have of the, the fire on the altar. Um, Secondly, over and over again, it's like a hallmark promise of the New Covenant. It says that Yeshua will immerse you, immerse me in the fire of the Holy Spirit. Right? So we can gain from that, that that His holiness is a fire. Because like, you know, the Holy Spirit in Hebrew is the spirit of holiness, right? His spirit is a fire. Actually, it even says our, our Elohim is a consuming fire, doesn't it? That's who He is. That's what He is. Um, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, um, Shaul says, don't quench the Spirit. Same idea, right? When you throw water on a fire, you quench it. He says, don't do that to the Spirit. Don't despise prophetic utterances. So he connects quenching the Spirit with despising the gift of prophecy. And you know what? Sometimes we can get offended by the messenger and we can reject the message as a result. You know, if you're like a really kind of cool, calm, level-headed, rational, analytical type... Like, prophetic people will kind of scare you or irritate you or something, probably. Because, like, prophetic people are often, they're just kind of wild and out of the box and passionate, and I love that. But sometimes it can scare some people, right? So Paul is like, guys, don't despise prophetic utterances because that will be quenching the Spirit. Okay? We can make that connection. Um, In Jeremiah chapter 23, you should read Jeremiah 23. It's like this chapter-long rant against false prophets. And it, there are lots of false prophets out there today, and uh, it really applies. And uh, here, here's, here's, here's like the, the kicker for the whole chapter. In uh, verse 29, it says, he says, Isn't my word like a fire, declares Yahweh, and like a hammer which shatters a rock? So did you hear that? Like Yahweh's word, when it's delivered in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through the gift of prophecy, it's like a fire. Right? That's what, that's what like, the real prophetic gifting is all about. 
Okay? So maybe, hopefully, those scriptures will give us um, more of an idea of what this fire on the altar is a picture of. Does anyone else have any... Did the Spirit bring any other verses to your mind about that? Any thoughts? So what we see here is like his fire is a fire of holiness. It's a fire of like the prophetic message. It's a fire of his love and it's a fierce love. And that's, that's your inheritance in the new covenant. Like that is our birthright in the heart of, of Elohim. And there's a path to go there. And uh, a couple of these like symbols that are used in terms of the altar and stuff, I think it kind of gives us that path. So think of yourself like a disciple, right? And like you are on a quest to acquire this, this sacred fire that's going to consume you, that is going to give you like this prophetic ability, that is going to fill you with real love. Maybe you're like, uh, I didn't even see the movie, but you know like the dude, the Tin Man or whatever, who had like, didn't have a heart and he was on a quest to get a heart. I never even saw the movie. The whole wizard thing kind of weirded me out so I didn't watch it. But like, maybe like that or something, you know? So, just imagine that's you and you're going on this quest. So there are like these symbolic clues in this like, hard to understand language in Leviticus that, that, that are going to show you the path to, uh, to that fire. So let, let's look at that. In um, Leviticus chapter 6, verse 9, it says that the fire goes under the olah. So the fire is used to burn up the burnt offering, right? To make it go up and smoke. And then it says, how long does it remain, how long does it burn for? All night. That's the first thing that jumped out to me, out of me. Like, what does, what does, what does the spiritual night symbolize? Uh, have, we, have you ever had times when you went through a spiritual night season? Maybe it was just you didn't know what to do or where to go. And he was just saying, just be with me. You know, stop running around. Just settle down. Um, c- cut all the works and just rest in who I am. Um, maybe that can be sometimes part of the spiritual night season. Um, sometimes it can be, I think the night can be connected with the experience of the cross where it's dark and you are dying and it's your self-life and it's brutal and your flesh is screaming, but it's good because Yeshua is going to live through you as a result, right? Maybe that can be part of the deal. Could it be that that's part of the path to, uh, to his fire and what, what his fire represents? Yeah, so I'll repeat that. So antithetically, the fire, the unholy fire of Nebuchadnezzar burned up the fetters and everything on um, Daniel's three friends and it didn't consume them. Hmm. Wow. Hey, let's look. I need to turn this down. I feel like I'm shouting in my own ear. Okay, uh, Leviticus six verse twelve. Let's look at that verse also. It's, it continues talking about the fire on the altar. It says, "The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. But the Kohen, the priest, shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall lay out the burnt offering on it and offer up and smoke the fat portions of the peace offerings on it." Um, note there, what does the priest burn on it every morning? Wood, that's right. What's the Hebrew word for wood? Eights, that's right. It says eightsim in Hebrew, which is literally trees. The priest shall burn trees on it every morning, translated wood. But what is uh, the Hebrew word for our Savior's cross? It's the same word. It's eights. Remember, in, for instance, um, you know, First uh, Peter two, it talks about Yeshua dying on the tree. Yeah. So there's, there's, this con- there's this conceptual connection again between the fire on the altar 
and Yeshua's cross, the, the crucifixion, and uh, perhaps the cross as it's applied to our own self-life too, in our path. Yeah. So the, the, these, I'm basically like, these are, my, these are my spiritual journal entries I'm sharing with you, right? Like, as I studied the Parsa this week, this is what Yeshua is speaking to me from my life. And I'm just sharing that, right? Because like, I'm a disciple, I'm on a journey, I want his fire in my life. Because life is not worth living without his fire. Like, we, we, are, we live in a world of people who have no idea where they're going. They have no sense of mission. If you ask them why they're here, most people can't tell you why they're here. And so you're just trying to fill up your life with uh, hedonistic pursuits. Some, let's see how much cash I can make. Let's see how many people I can control or make unhappy or uh, how much pleasure I can pack in before they put me six feet under. You know what? That's the story of most people. And Yeshua is, like, calling us to follow him, to take the path of discipleship and to encounter a fire that will consume us, that will like give us a voice from him for the world around us. That, that, that grips me. I have to admit, that really grips me. That's what I'm living for. Um, so we talked like a couple weeks ago about how, you know what, there are times when we all feel like kind of lukewarm inside or just like downright cold and we are just not feeling any love for the Father. We really feel far from Him. Like, don't feel any zeal for His kingdom or whatever, right? We've all been there. I, I feel that every week, basically. Um, and we talked about how, like, when we focus on Yeshua and the sufferings that He underwent for us and His passion for each of us and the death, like the brutal death, the bloody death that He, he experienced for us, like, it awakens your heart to Him. It stirs a new love, eh? And, and I really see that same theme here. Um, so I encourage you, like, if that fire in you is beginning to go out, if there's stuff that's quenching the fire, go back to the cross. Go back to what Yeshua did in his death. Uh, meditate on his sufferings. Like, block an hour out and just meditate on our Savior's sufferings, eh? Like, become a contemplative. Because in the process of becoming a contemplative, the fire will be rekindled in your heart. And, uh, and it's a consuming fire. And it will spread to other people's lives, too. It can even spread to other people's lives over Facebook. Right? Wherever you are. His fire will spread. Yeah. Here, here's a scripture about that. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. A lot of people will be like, you know, I just don't feel God's love. I don't know if he loves me. I mean, I've heard this stuff. I've been to church all my life, but... I just don't feel his love, right? I, I, I'll, I, I'll suggest to you that if we like connect with this idea, we will feel his love. In, uh, in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says that God, Elohim, demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Messiah died for us. So did you get that? He demonstrated the fullness of his love for you, like a fierce love. So if we're like not feeling it, if we're not feeling connected to his love, then we need to go back to that point where he demonstrated his love. When was that? Yeah. It's when you and I were vicious rebels, when we were nailing him up on the cross because we hated his guts and we hated the fact that he was righteous. It's when, when you and I were the enemies of God. Did you notice that? Well, we were sinners. That's like criminals, right? When we were the hardened criminals, when we were the murderers, Yeshua looked into our eyes and he died for you and me to set us free from our insanity. 
That's love. Like, to, to, to suffer and to die for the Roman soldier who's spitting in your face and nailing you up on the cross and mocking you the whole way? That's love. And I'm that Roman soldier. Maybe you're that Roman soldier. Because we, we were sinners, and Yeshua died for us. You know what? Like, when you start thinking along those lines, when you go back to, when you go back to Golgotha, His fire will be rekindled in your life. You will feel His love again. So if there's ever a time when you're just feeling lukewarm, when you're not feeling His love, go back and contemplate Yeshua's passion. Think about His sufferings. Remember that it was for you. Make it personal, eh? However you do, however you do that. That's just something I really feel this morning. We can remember that those who are forgiven much, the Master said, those who are forgiven much, they're the ones who love much, right? I don't, have any of us, can any of us here say, yeah, God hasn't forgiven me of too much, you know? I'm a pretty good person, you know? Oh. He said, those are the people who, who love little. But when we realize, like, our, crapital, our, our capital offenses, our crimes against him, well, they're capital too, then um, that's when we begin to realize, like, wow, you have forgiven me of so much, and you shouldn't have, but you did, eh? So that's, um, that's the Torah that we can get. That's the teaching that we can get from the, the Olah, the burnt offering, hey, and the fire on it. And I mean, we could go over each one of these offerings, we could break it down, we could say, okay, what's the Torah behind this thing? What's the deeper teaching, right? We just don't have time. Maybe we'll do one a year, and then we'll be at it for the next five years, and then we'll do something else or something, right? Maybe something like that. But here's one more thing. Who, keeps the, who, keep, who puts the wood on the altar, and who keeps the fire burning in this passage? It's the Kohen, the priest, that's right. Who is our Kohen Hagadol, our high priest? So who is going to apply the cross to your life? Yeah. Don't you hate that sometimes? I mean, you know, when you say Jesus is Lord, Yeshua is the Master, you're saying I'm giving you full authorization to bring me into situations that will break me, that will just destroy my self-life, that will be painful. Just remember, when you gave your life to him, he's going to do it. He's going to apply the cross to your life. He's going to take the wood and he's going to put it on the fire and he's going to put you on that altar and you're going to burn and it's going to, be, it's going to hurt. But in the end, like, it's going to be Yeshua living through us. Right? Man, I'm kind of scared. Like, I feel like this is a message he's been giving me for the last couple weeks and I'm scared because sometimes that means like he's getting me ready for something. I'm like, I hate pain. Seriously, I hate pain, okay? Like, I am not a tough guy. I hate pain. I'll do anything to avoid pain. I really dislike emotional pain because it's really deep and it really hurts and it's distracting and I can't do stuff that I like to do and I don't feel like I'm in control when I'm in pain, I will admit, right? And um, so I don't know. They're, like, that's the personal side to it for me. So I'm saying this maybe more for me than for anybody, but it applies to all of us because we're all disciples, eh? Yeah. That's true. When you can know that he's leading and he's bringing us into situations and he's doing it for a reason, it makes all the difference, doesn't it? You can even be happy then, eh? It's like, yes, this hurts and it's good. (laughs) Yes, I'm dying and I love this because Yeshua is more of you, Yeshua, eh? Yeah, all things work together for good. Those who love him. Mm. Amen. Yeah. Uh, the next verse, building on that thought also, it says, Fire shall be kept burning continually on the altar. The Hebrew word there is ash, 
fire, tamid, which means regular, like the morning offering that was done regularly every morning and evening or afternoon. That was the tamid offering, right? So um, what, what would be a verse that would kind of peg that and make it practical? Uh, Paul, he said in 1 Thessalonians 5, pray continually. And the idea there in Hebrew is pray tamid, like pray regularly. You know, make sure you connect with the Father every morning. If you can, block a couple minutes out of your schedule in the afternoon before supper and just touch base with Him. Pray. And that fire, you will be keeping that fire burning in your life. You'll be keeping it burning hot and bright. Maybe that's the idea there. I'm trying to make it uh, practical. Um, we'll, make one more, we'll hit one more practical thing from this parsha In Leviticus chapter 7, verse 23, it says, Don't eat fat. Like from the uh, animal offerings, don't eat fat. And uh, then in 7, 26 and 27, it says don't eat blood. And uh, basically, he's just reiterating something that he says in Leviticus chapter 3, verse, uh, where is it? Yeah, verse 17. He says it's a law forever, a perpetual statute, throughout your generations, in all your dwellings. Does that sound like all-encompassing? Like basically, any time, any place, this is for you. Don't eat any fat or any blood. Now, you have to realize here, this, when I first read that, I was like, oh, shoot. Because sometimes you'll have a piece of roast beef, and there are like little chunks of fat in it. Like, what do you do? Do you sit there and like pick out every single little itty-bitty tiny piece of fat, right? And like three hours after the restaurant is supposed to close, you're still sitting there like picking the fat out of your roast beef. Like, is that what it's saying? No. Um, there, there's like, there's some fat that's just naturally marbled in some pieces of meat. But if you look at the fat it's talking about, it's like the big fat chunks on the back end of the animal. Those go on the altar, right? So don't eat that, he says. And uh, also don't eat any blood, he says. This... this this is interesting. Let's, let's dig into this for a second. Is there any place in the New Testament where uh, this concept is reiterated? Acts. Chapter 15. It says what? Yeah. That's right. You know, there were these dudes who were like, hey, you have, to, you have to convert to Judaism. You have to get circumcised. You need to start doing the whole Torah if you're going to be saved. So, you know, they all convened in Jerusalem and they said, okay, boys, like, this is where it's at. These are the four, like, non-negotiable essentials. This is a must. And one of them was this law. Where did they pull this law out of? They pulled it out of the book of Leviticus. They pulled it out of these chapters. So it is kind of interesting that the apostles saw that there was a place for Levitical law, even in the New Covenant. So, you know, if someone says dietary laws, all done away with, totally irrelevant. If someone says Levitical stuff, not for us today, different dispensation. Remember that the apostles took at least one commandment from the book of Leviticus, one dietary law, and they said, guys, this is a non-negotiable. Do this or else. You must. Now, here's, here's what I think is weird. Have you ever, like, maybe encountered the concept of eating blood sausage or blood soup? Yeah. Um, Okay. You know what? In some Christian circles, like, blood sausage and blood soup is fine. Nobody blinks an eye. Um, I think sometimes in Mennonite culture, blood sausage is a real, like, something to drool at. I can't remember. I, but, you know, I, I had a friend who uh, went down on a missions trip to Jamaica in his teens, and the youth pastor, like, led them all in having this awful blood sausage. The youth pastor should have known better. 
It's like, haven't you read your Bible? Have you never read Acts 15? Don't eat meat that is being like slaughtered in a way that leaves the blood in it. It's one of the. It's like one of the four things that they said, guys. This is non-negotiable, right? And I just think like in our gusto to distance ourselves from the law of God, in our zeal to assert that we are under grace, have we thrown the baby out with the bathwater? You know, that, that, that's something I really, I really question. And maybe, you know, times like that, that's the litmus test. If, if you care so little for the Bible and for the law of God that you'll go ahead and you'll lead your whole youth group in eating blood sausage or you'll have no problems with blood soup, I suggest to you that you don't know God and you don't love God. According to 1 John, I know those are strong words, right? But 1 John, this is what he says. He says, if anyone says they love God, but they don't keep his commandments, they're lying and they don't know God. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments, right? So I, I fear, I, I fear that sometimes in our zeal for staying free, and I value freedom, I'm all about freedom, but I fear that sometimes in our zeal for staying free, we've, we've missed what he's saying. We've, we've become imbalanced. So the quest is, you know, how do, how do law and grace balance each other out? What does it mean to love God and keep his commandments? Right? What, what does freedom look like? What if it's freedom to do what he said instead of freedom to just do, do my own thing? But if you could come to think about it, in the absence of law, justice and grace becomes redundant. Well, without, in the absence of law, is there such a thing as grace or justice, eh? Yeah, you're right. It's, it's, it's foundational. I mean, really, you can only understand Mashiach's propitiation. You can only understand the, do, the doctrine of justification within the realms of his law. Eh? So it's, it's part of the picture. It's part of the picture. Yeah. So let's look at Galatians now. Having said that, let's look at Galatians. I love Galatians. I think I told you guys last week, some of you weren't here, but you know, um, we're going through the second half of the apostolic scriptures. Um, we got this reading thing from another congregation. They had the whole book of Galatians on one, one Saturday. It's like, I don't know, are you trying to skip over something here? Is some things in Galatians making you uncomfortable? So I broke it down. We're taking three weeks on Galatians because I love the book of Galatians. Um, let's, let's look at it. There, like, there's some main themes in Galatians chapters 3 and 4 that I would like to hit with you. Um, here, I'll list them for you. Abraham, faith, promise, spirit, Torah, covenants, and that's, those are the main ones in Galatians chapter 3 and 4. So let's look at that for a second. Uh, let's begin with this Abraham theme. Paul was really big on Abraham. He kept bringing stuff back to Abraham. You know, you read Romans, you read Galatians. It's like he keeps bringing it back to Abraham. Uh, let, let's look at that. Galatians chapter 3 verse 7, he says, Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Who cares if I'm a son of Abraham or not? It's probably what a lot of us would think, right? Like, I don't know, you're some, some Bedouin dude who lived 4,000 years ago. Um, but it was, a, it was a big deal to Paul. He says, when you're, when you're like, if you're a person who has faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you're a son of Abraham. Okay, I'll give you the context for that, okay? In the Second Temple era, like in Paul's time, if you wanted to come to faith in the God of Israel and become part of the nation of Israel, then you would do a couple things. You'd get circumcised. If you're a male, you would go to Jerusalem and, and uh, do a sacrifice if you could. And one of the other things you would do is you would take a Hebrew name. 
It's like, hey, you're part of the family. We're going to give you a Hebrew name now. And, uh, you know, classic, classic Hebrew names are like so-and-so, son of so-and-so, right? So so-and-so, Ben, so-and-so. If you're a girl, then you're so-and-so, bought so-and-so. You're so-and-so, daughter of so-and-so is the, kind of the idea. And here's the cool thing. If you were like a proselyte to Judaism, if you were joining the family from like a pagan background, then you become so-and-so, son of Abraham, Ben, Avraham. Or if you're a girl, you become so-and-so, bought Sarah, the daughter of Sarah. And uh, Peter, you remember, he talks about, he's talking to these, these um, ladies who came to faith from the nations in First Peter 3, and he says, you've become her daughters, Sarah's daughters, if you do what's right, without being intimidated, right? So this is something, this is something that was important to the apostles. And um, this is the idea here. So for, 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 for Paul to say, you guys, you know what, you used to be a bunch of like total hardcore pagans, drinking blood from skulls and like, I'm not going to list all the things that hardcore pagans do. For him to say, like, you know what, if you've come to faith in Messiah, you're a son of Abraham, that's huge for a Jew to say. He's saying, I look at you as a proselyte. I look at you as someone who's become part of the family. I'm proud to call you my brother and sister. You are in. You're not out anymore. You're in. That's what Paul was saying, right? That's huge. That's a, I, I believe this is a verse that Messianic Judaism needs to take to heart. Sometimes Messianic Judaism likes to make this distinction between Jew and Gentile. You know, we Jews, we're a little more in than you Gentiles, and it's a little bit different for us. And Paul says, no, if you're faith, then you're Ben Avraham, you're Batsura. Um, so that's the first thing. Also in Galatians 3.19, he, uh, he talks about the, the seed coming to whom the promises had been made. And uh, the word there for seed, it's like the Hebrew word that means your offspring. Your, so like tears is my seed, right? If you were to use the Hebrew idiom. She's like my descendant. She's my offspring, eh? And um, that's, that's like, hold that thought in your mind. And we'll, we're going we're gonna to come back to that. Okay, Abraham in Galatians 3.9 is called Abraham the Believer. So Abraham's like the ultimate believer, right? The Hebrew word for the, a believer is ma'amin. Everybody say ma'amin. <clears throat> so if like, it's, it's a big thing. Like, you know, the Juda- Judaism has like the 13 principles of faith. Where you say, I believe, da-da-da-da-da. I believe, da-da-da-da-da. And in Hebrew you say, ani, that's I, ma'amin. I believe, right? And it says Abraham is the ma'amin. He's like the ultimate believer in, in Pauline theology. So here's the cool thing. That's you too. You are a ma'amin. Like, you are someone who is a believer, right? And um, maybe we could ask ourselves, like, okay, there's the word believing and there's the word faith. Are they the same word? Like, did you notice that? Is there, like, okay, faith is a noun, right? Faith is something you have. But is faith a verb too? Yeah, it is. It's just we don't really talk about it. But it would be like saying, I faithed something, right? I faithed it. Faith is a verb. And I'll give you, I'll give you a, a verse about that. Like in Galatians 3.6, it says, Abraham believed God. So you could say just as well, Abraham faithed God. Right? So this is like our forefather. This is what it's about. So let's, let's continue on looking at that. In um, Galatians 3.16, Paul says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed... What does seed mean again? 
yeah, offspring, descendant. He, and then Paul points out, this is a drosh, he doesn't say to seeds, as to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is who? Messiah, that's right. So, you know, th- this, is, this is a massive thing for us, theologically speaking. Like, when we look at the promises in the Torah to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we say, look at that, it doesn't say seeds, it says your seed, who is the Messiah? So, like, the promise of the inheritance of the land of Israel, <clears throat> who is that really made to, ultimately? It's made to the Messiah. Yeshua is the ultimate heir to the land of Israel. He's going to come back and he's going to take the place over. His father's going to give it to him. And could it be that if we are co-heirs, like it says in Romans 8, maybe you and I will be inheriting the land of Israel too? Maybe we could be part of that? Yeah, that's radical theology, but I I think you could make a very strong case for it, biblically speaking. Here's a... So in 3.19 he says, All the promises are made to the seed, who is Messiah... Um, I'll give you the Hebrew word for promise here. In Hebrew, it's havtacha. Everybody say havtacha. It's from the root like batach. Okay, like I'll give you an example in modern Hebrew. If, if you're saying something, someone's telling you something, and you're like, for sure. You know, maybe, do, you, do you ever say for sure when someone says something to you? In Hebrew, you would say betach. Everybody say betach. So that's a good word. You can say that all the time. Betach, for sure. You know? um, that's the root of a promise. So a promise in Hebrew is something that is for sure. It's something that is certain. It's something that is guaranteed. It's something that you can bank on. It's something that you can be confident of, right? So every promise in the word that he has made to you, that he's made to Messiah, that's the stuff that we can be confident of in this life. That's the stuff that he's like saying, this is for sure. You know, in a world that is full of variables, in a world that, in which change is seemingly the only constant sometimes, his promises are for sure. So, you know, make them your anchor. Dig deep in the promises. Okay, let's look at the, the theme of the Spirit here also. Um, like, the Spirit and the supernatural dimension are basically interchangeable terms. The Holy Spirit is a person. Um, you know, he's the one who guides us into all the truth, reminds us of the Master's words, etc. Here's something cool. In Galatians 3.5, he says how he gives us the Spirit, how he does miracles in our midst. And what he says is he doesn't do it based on our Torah observance. He doesn't do it based on how good you are and how many good things. What does, he, what, does he, what does he do it on? He says, like, hearing and believing. Right? I, I, I'm going to share something with you. Sometimes I feel that the way we pray can almost be like works praying. And I, I, I'm hesitant to say this. Like, he, he, feel me out here because, you know, he did say, ask and I'll do it for you, right? He said that over and over, ask, ask, ask. So that's part of the equation. But sometimes I feel like our prayers become works, where it's all about us, and I need to pray enough to get him to do something, and it's not even about faith anymore. So let me suggest to you that, you know, if you want to see the supernatural in your life, if you want to see him do massive miracles and stuff like that, then it's going to come from faith. And how does faith come? Faith comes by hearing the word. That's right. So, like, you know, the supernatural and miracles and stuff, those are the natural outflow of faith. And faith comes by getting into his word, getting a revelation of who he is, and then all that stuff's going to happen, right? So, um, yeah, that's just something I've been, I've been contemplating lately. Like, like, uh, like Paul, here's something fascinating. He said, okay, so I have this thorn thing, and you know, I entreated Elohim three whole times to take it away from me. 
Like for, for Paul, having to ask God three times for something was really pushing it. So think about that in our prayer lives. What would that look like? It's like, you know, what if you just ask him for something once based on the fact that he told you, ask, you know, and I'll give it to you if it's my will, and then you just left it. What if a year went by? What if two years went by? What if, th- what if a decade went by and you said, yeah, he said to ask him for that and I asked him. That's faith. And I mean, there, there are times to persevere, right? There's times to be like the importunatist woman and just keep banging on the door every day and don't give up until it happens, right? There's that side. But sometimes I feel like the Father has a place of rest for us in prayer where we can just say, thank you for your promise. Thank you for what you've said. I'm just going to cheer you on. That, that, that's, that's an idea. Um, in Galatians 3.21, I think this is like really hitting at the heart of this book too. Okay, verse, verse 21, he says, If a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. I, I feel like that's the heart of this book. Some people thought, okay, if I, you know, get all my Torah ducks in a row, if, I, if I'm a really good person, like how many people in our culture think that they're going to have eternal life because they're good people? Really. It's huge, right? So this really applies. And Paul says, like, if there was a law, and you could just keep that law and it would give you life, then, you know, the whole, like, faith thing is pointless. Yeshua didn't have to die if you can just go to heaven by being a good person. And um, that's huge, because, you know, a lot of people think, okay, eternal life starts when I die, and I go to heaven or whatever. But you know what? Like, eternal life starts right now, because we live in a dead world, and Yeshua wants to so bring us to life that we will bring the people around us to life, that we can bring them to faith, eh? That's what imparts the life, yeah. Um, in Galatians 4, 6, this is kind of cool. The spirit in you actually says a Hebrew word for dad. I mean, like, okay, we're assuming Paul wrote this in Greek, that can be up for debate. Let's just assume that he wrote it in Greek. It's kind of interesting that he didn't use the Greek word for dad. He used the Hebrew word, Abba. It's like there's something so special about the word Abba that he just had to use the word Abba. So I don't know, isn't it cool that the Spirit in you at least says one Hebrew word? The Holy Spirit in you calls God a Hebrew word for dad? I, don't, I like that. You know, the first time I went to Israel and I was sitting on the bus and I heard like a two-year-old calling his dad Abba, it blew me away. I was like, he's calling his dad Abba. It just it spoke volumes to me about my relationship with the Father. Eh? So let the Holy Spirit speak Hebrew through you because the Holy Spirit speaks Hebrew. He calls God by Hebrew names and, and titles. Um, Galatians 3.12 is a key text that indicates to us that when Paul is talking about the law, he's not always talking about the Torah. He's talking about legalism sometimes. God's law is good. It's for our good. Legalism is bad, right? It's like God's law, good, legalism, bad, right? Don't mix the two up. One will kill you, the other is for your good. Um, in, here's another verse along those lines, Galatians 3.21. He says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And he uses a really like reactionary violent term. May it never be. In Hebrew, you'd say like, halila, like never. So like, get that, get that. The promises of God and the law of God, they're not against each other. They're not in contradistinction to each other. Yeah. So that's something to take note of. Sometimes, sometimes um, that's not how the Torah is, is um, communicated. Um, also, um, Paul gives two functions of the Torah. In uh, Galatians 
and 3.19, he says the Torah has the effect of shutting people up under sin. So it shows you your transgressions, right? It's that whole convicting of sin thing. Then also in 3.24, he says it's a tutor to Messiah. I don't know. Do you ever need to be pointed to Messiah? Do you ever have your days when you just like are totally not focused on him? That's what the Torah is for. The Torah is like physical things that keep you thinking about him, that keep pointing you back to him. You know, the biblical festivals. For me, wearing tzitzit points me to Yeshua every morning when I put them on. It's this unavoidable thing, right? Because either like, either I get up in the morning and I put my clothes on, and that points me to him, or I don't put my clothes on, and then it doesn't point me to him, but I don't do that. So it's kind of unavoidable, right? It's like starting the day with him. There's a couple of practical examples. Um, let's look at covenants too for a second here. This is humongous in understanding covenants. Um, in Galatians 3.17, he says, the law, which came 430 years later, doesn't invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. So get that. When the Holy One makes a covenant, the next covenant he made doesn't cancel the previous covenant, according to Pauline theology, according to the book of Galatians. That, that, that's, what I, that's what I get out of that. He, he, he also says in verse 15, even though it's a man's covenant, even in human covenants, when it's been ratified, you don't just set it aside or start adding more conditions to it, eh? So think about that. Like his covenants build on each other. The Abrahamic covenant, the, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, it doesn't cancel each other. The new covenant, they build on each other, eh? So the concept that the Mosaic covenant is just totally defunct, it doesn't apply anymore, it's a done deal, it's all over, uh, that, that doesn't hold water with Paul's covenant theology, in, in my understanding, based on the book of Galatians. Yeah. Then um, he also, man, I don't know, this is maybe something that makes some Messianic people squirm. Uh, the last half of Galatians 4, he draws this, um, yeah, it probably took a little chutzpah to do this, but he draws this analogy and he says there are two covenants. There is the covenant through Moses and there is the new covenant through Yeshua's blood. And he, 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 he compares the covenant, the Mosaic covenant from Mount Sinai and the present Jerusalem with slavery, with like a slave mentality, which is basically you must do this. We talked last week about how religious spirits will often push you, will pressure you, will force you to do something in the name of righteousness. And then he says, like the present Jerusalem that's in slavery, technically that's not actually our mother. Our mother is the new Jerusalem, like the Jerusalem above. That's huge. And does that mean the Mosaic Covenant doesn't have any role to play? No, we just talked about how it does, right? He shows, he shows us what the function of it is. But what I hear there is a challenge to be New Covenant oriented. You know, for some people, it's Torah, Torah, Torah. That's all they ever talk about. And you know what? It does say to talk about the Torah like 24-7, right? Everywhere you go. But we have to look at the Torah through the lens of Yeshua through the lens of the new covenant, that we have a Savior who shed his blood for us. We do it because he's our example. You know what I'm saying? Like, I want to be Yeshua, Yeshua, Yeshua. Because Yeshua is the Torah, and that will also mean Torah, right? I don't know, maybe it just sounds like semantics to you or splitting hairs, but it's not to me. It's a big deal. I want to be new covenant oriented and also do Torah from that position. So, 
That's something I've been thinking about. Man, he like really hits it hard. Galatians 4.30, he says like, okay, that, that slavery mentality, that religious mindset that was coming from the Jerusalem of that era, that was based only on the new covenant, he said, kick it out. He said, cast out that, that thing, right? So um, what, what does that look like? I think it's an attitude, it's a mindset. It's like if there's this religious spirit that we've talked about saying like, you must do this, and it's taking your focus off Yeshua, and like the gospel and the new covenant, then like let your get your hackles up over that, right? Go on the war path. Dig in your heels and say no. Cast that thing out. That, that that's what I hear from Paul in Galatians four, eh? Okay, here's the last thing. Galatians chapter four, verse ten. I'm gonna give you an example of taking something out of context and like getting the totally wrong meaning. Maybe this verse has even been used against you if you do the biblical festivals that God said to do and that Yeshua did. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I've labored, labored over you in vain. If you don't read the context, what it sounds like is these dumb Galatians were going back to doing things like Passover and the biblical festivals. They were observing the Sabbath. And Paul was freaking out and he was afraid because he thought the whole thing was, was, was a disaster because these stupid Galatians are going back to the law. That, that's probably the common interpretation. But I'm going to suggest an interpretation to you that is different based on the context. Let's look at the context. In, let's back up two verses. We don't have to go far here. Galatians chapter 4, verse 8, he says, However, at that time when you didn't know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. So who is he, who is he talking to there? Is he talking to Jews or is he talking to pagans? He's talking to pagans. They were slaves to idols. They did not know God. Is it, could, could, we infer, could, we, could we infer that from that verse? So Paul was not talking to Jews who had come to believe in Yeshua and then were going back to celebrating biblical festivals. He was talking to pagans who had a hardcore pagan background. And he was saying, you're going back to this garbage. So he's talking about the garbage of paganism. He's talking about the bondage of idolatry, superstition, stuff like that. He's saying, you're going back to observing that. I fear for you that I've labored over you in your vein. Could, could, we, could we infer that? Could we make a solid case for that based on the context? I, I think so. So, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to really, be really frank with you. When I, you know, I love the body of Christ. I'm part of the body of Christ, right? I engage with the body of Christ. But sometimes I wonder if we, like, we got the whole thing turned around and if we missed the point. Paul was talking to a bunch of ex-pagans and he's saying, guys, don't go back to the pagan stuff. Don't go back to pagan seasons and days and observances. And yet when you look at our traditional Christian calendar today, the roots of almost every single traditional Christian observance has its roots in that pagan stuff that Paul said, guys, don't go back to that. And I'm not saying that to be critical, right? But I'm, I'm saying, I'm posing a question. Could it be that we missed the point of Galatians here? So Could it be that we totally turned it around? So she could have told him, don't go back to Easter, keep back, keep pace Maybe you could make that application, yeah. Even the days of the week are all Yeah, sure. 
So, you know, I, I'm not saying that to invite judgmentalism or whatever, but I, I want to believe the book. I want to get Paul's point here, right? And I'm wondering if we didn't miss Paul's point on this one. I mean, like, you know, I'm part of the PA ministerial. I love the guys in the ministerial. Like, those guys, I think pastors have the hardest job in the world. They're overworked. They're underappreciated. You know, when something goes wrong, everybody points past the finger at the pastor usually, right? And, like, some of these guys, like, they're, they're awesome men of God. But sometimes I have to admit, like, I don't totally feel like I fit in because I'm doing, you know, I'm doing the biblical festivals and stuff. And, you know, I was, at, I was in PA for the ministerial last week and most of it was about planning for Lent, right? And I'm like, I don't do Lent. And I don't even know, like, I can't find Lent in the Bible. I mean, you know, if you're Catholic and, you're, and your practice is based on church tradition, I can, I can appreciate that. But if you're Protestant and sola scriptura, like, scripture only is the banner under which you march... Like, how come you're doing all the stuff that isn't in the scriptures? I don't understand. You know, it's kind of like, so, I mean, like, this is, just, this is just me and my perspective. But again, I'm saying that from a place of love and from engaging with the body. I love the ministerial. I'm part of that, even if, you know, maybe I have some, like, differences of opinion. So, yeah. I think pastors' jobs would be a lot easier if, yeah, for sure. I'm not going to go there. <laughs> I'll let you guys go there for some time. But, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll leave you. Okay, this, this will be like our own egg discussion topic because it's something I've been wondering about. Um, I'll just throw it out there and then maybe we can discuss it over own egg. Um, Paul says, okay, so in um, Galatians 3.27, all of you who were immersed into Messiah have clothed yourselves with Messiah. So that's where you are right now. You are in Messiah. Like Yeshua is a person and you're actually in him right now. Like on a soul level. And a spiritual level. Wow. Then he goes on to say, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor, me, nor female. For you're all one in Messiah Yeshua. I, I've sometimes heard this verse used against Messianic Judaism. Well, there's no Jew in Messiah, right? What, you know, technically what he says, there's no Jew or Gentile in Messiah. So if the whole thing is Gentile, then maybe we can't use that verse for our, you know, for our argument or whatever. But that, and then he goes on to say, and if you belong to Messiah, then you are Abraham's seed. Heirs according to promise. Yeah, so let's talk about that. What does that look like? Being one in Messiah, where there's no Jew or Gentile, no slave or free, no, no male or female. I mean, I don't know, it looks like there's male and female, you know. There's still, like, social classes in some societies. So what does that mean? So that's what we can talk about over Oneg. I want to get your thoughts on that. Hmm? Oh, shoot, there's no Oneg. Oh, yeah. Man! Gonna leave you hanging. Well, okay. Maybe we'll just touch base about it this evening over supper. How about that? That'd be cool. Well, let's... Equality. Okay, yeah, let's just touch base on it for a minute right now. Equality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No more division. I like that. So it doesn't mean that you like can't be Jewish and be in the in the body of Messiah or be a believer. Right. Okay. There's no exclusiveness. No exclusiveness. Yeah. Honestly, I I feel like some sectors of the Messianic Jewish movement could really take this verse to heart because you know in some sectors like you go to a Messianic Jewish congregation and one of the first things you're asked if, is if you're Jewish. 
in some organizations, if you're not halachically Jewish, whatever that means, if you have a Jewish mom or whatever, it's a big debate, then you, know, you can't be on the, in, on the leadership of that congregation or you can't be a full member. You can be a friend. It makes me so mad. Seriously. It's like I don't know how you can develop that theology and read Paul. But anyway... So I, I feel like, you know what, we need to take these verses to heart. In Messiah, like, we are one, and that's something to emphasize and to value and to fight for. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.